0: Well, we can turn back to the passage that we read there from Luke chapter uh, 23. I'll reread a couple of verses, verses 33 and 34. And when they came to a place that was called a skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. I suppose today in Jerusalem, many people took a walk for one of the options that is said to be Calvary. And no doubt, they went there for different reasons. One might have gone there because it was a lifetime ambition. Others may have gone there because it's one of the sites that tourists go to when they visit the Holy Land. Others might have gone to strengthen their faith just to see what the visible um, surroundings were like. And um, these options are, are, um, are all valid. Um, it, is, it is very moving to go there and think that round about A.D. 33, Jesus was crucified there. of course, we don't have to go to Jerusalem in order to go to Calvary. We can go there tonight. And I hope we will. Those that went today to the literal site, well, they would need a guide, wouldn't they? They would need someone to tell them what the various things around the locations signified. And uh, they would have to go with a certain attitude of mind. It's, it's, It's not the kind of place where you see people laughing. For whatever reason they go there. And as we make our way to Calvary we need a guide and of course that guide he's the Holy Spirit in fact he's the only guide and he's uh, one that has guided millions to Calvary and for all we know He may be doing that uh, tonight in countless locations. And when he brings people to Calvary, he arranges for certain attitudes. What should be in our minds as we approach the cross? read a hymn, I think it's kind of summed it up. To Calvary Lord, in spirit now, our weary souls repair to dwell upon thy dying love and taste its sweetness there. No idea why that man wrote that verse. But as I looked at it, three things seemed to stand out reverence, reflection, refreshment. According to the man, our weary souls can go there. a question that only each of us can ask but are we weary? The normal effect of going through a desert is weariness. The world's a desert at least for those who are wanting to drink the right thing. It's also a place of refreshment, of course, isn't it? Taste its sweetness. From one point of view, Calvary is the most barbaric place on earth. His face was bruised more than any man. But from another point of view, it's the sweetest place on earth. Those who went to a site in Jerusalem today might never want to go back there again. They've seen it. But uh, when we're led by the Holy Spirit, we'll want to go there as often as possible. Indeed, indeed, somewhere we should go every day and it is possible to go there every day Luke um, as we know the gospel writers all give their own slant on things and Luke is the only one that tells us about this prayer this prayer that Jesus made, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I wonder who told him about it. I'm not going to suggest an answer because I haven't a clue. But it is interesting that uh, the Matthew doesn't mention this prayer nor does Mark nor does John but somebody must have heard it. Maybe Luke in his travels met one of the soldiers and that soldier said to him Jesus prayed for me. Who knows? But anyway, Luke tells us as he begins his gospel that he made extra special effort to find out what had happened. And this is one of the things that he found out, what Jesus said when he arrived at the cross. just want us to look at two or three things. The location and the process. And then secondly, the prayer of Jesus. What does his prayer actually mean? And then the gambling of the soldiers. What does that tell us? Their response. And then some lessons from it: the location and the process. Well, John tells us it was beside a very busy road. Everybody that walked by, they could see what was happening. They could comment. They could speak to the victims. Normally, probably shout abuse of some kind at them, but it was a very busy road. Mark tells us the time it happened. It was the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning. Some people like to put things on their phone so it pings at a certain hour. Nine o'clock in the morning, that's when Jesus was crucified. Maybe as we're having our breakfast tomorrow, we might think of that. Luke gives a very brief description, very brief description of him of what happened. In English, four words. There they crucified him. But then Luke didn't have to go into any great details because every person that was alive at the time he wrote the gospel knew full well what a crucifixion was like. They were bound to have seen one because it was one of the most common activities of the Roman Empire. It was the ultimate deterrent to any kind of um, person wanting to revolt against the state. Just take a look at someone who has been crucified. And that would usually put an end to any kind of thought of rebellion. It didn't for everybody of course but for a lot of people it did. But we may not be familiar with crucifixion. Somebody once said that we have sanitized the cross. We have taken away its offensiveness, its ugliness, its horribleness. What was crucifixion like? Well, normally, the cross was shaped like a T. And sometimes, the pole, it was just there all the time, just waiting for a victim to take the crossbeam along. Because the victim had to carry it. And he knew where he was carrying it to. Other times they had to carry both parts of the cross. But anyway, it was like a tea. And when the poor person got there, he was nailed by his hands through his wrists to the beam, arms stretched out, just to make it uncomfortable. And then he was his feet. It must have been quite a long spike, but it was pushed through both of them, probably down near his ankles. The fact that they were nailed in such a way made it hard to breathe. And we think about that from Psalm 22. It's quite extraordinary that Psalm 22 mentions that detail as the Saviour struggles to get his breath. Because that was a feature of uh, crucifixion there in verse 15. And as I fight to draw my breath. After Nine o'clock in the morning on that particular day, Jesus never had an easy breath. Every breath he took was a struggle for him. And that goes for the breath that he took before he made this prayer. It wasn't easy for him. To speak when he was on the cross. Above his head was written the crime for which the person had been sentenced to death. And we're told what the alleged crime of Jesus was there in verse 38. This, this is the king of the Jews. And everybody looking, walking past, would read it. Because it wasn't written as small letters. And it's inevitable that everybody that looked at that sign would say, wouldn't they? Well, that's some kind of king. But it is a striking statement, isn't it? To have that above your head. Especially as it's true. He is the King of the Jews. That's what the wise men asked, wasn't it? Where is he who is born King of the Jews? I wonder, would they have gone on to ask at a later date where is he who died king of the Jews but anyway wise men do ask that second question they don't just ask it at his birth they also ask it at his death anyway As we look at the three crucified people, we can see, can't we, that it's an amazing fulfillment of prophecy there. As Isaiah 53 tells us, he's numbered with the transgressors. But that prediction does raise another question, and that is what number? What number is he given? The place that he's placed in, put in, is the place where Barabbas should have been. And of course, Barabbas was the leader. The leader of the gang. Barabbas was meant to be number one prisoner number one transgressor but Jesus became number one transgressor Barabbas if he had been there would only have been guilty of his own sins but Jesus when he went there he didn't go for any sins of his own but he was still the number one transgressor because he had the sins of all his people having to pay for them. And if any of us look at our sins well, how many are there? And each one of them as archaicism tells us, deserves God's wrath and curse. And as Paul says in Galatians, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. But I suppose we can say, although we say it with reverence and trepidation, There was never anyone cursed like him. Christ became a curse for us. The innocent in place of the guilty. And what does it mean to be cursed? It just basically means to be judged by God. Not everybody that was crucified was in that situation. Some people were crucified, we might say, um, innocently. No doubt that happened. And of course, Peter himself, he was crucified upside down. And when he was crucified, he wasn't cursed. But Jesus, there he is. And as we pay our visit, what do we see? We see the only sinless man who ever lived. And he's about to become a curse. As these nails go through his hands and feet, that's his destiny, to become a curse numbered with the transgressor. Yeah, at the same time, he's actually near to the transgressors, isn't he? I mean, how far is he away from the other two? Well, he's close enough later on to have conversations with them. And it's rather intriguing that they do have conversations, especially since the three of them would find it hard to breathe. But there they are. That's the location and the process. I suppose if Luke hadn't told us this verse, we might wonder if Jesus had ever said anything when he arrived at Calvary. And how we might have responded to the agony of the treatment he got. I'm just trying to imagine it. I mean, if I get a pin in my hand, I almost feel inclined to tell the world. What if a nail, but a nail with a mallet, that's a different thing altogether. anyway, Jesus prayed his first prayer on the cross. And I suppose there's lots of lessons that people have suggested from this prayer. No doubt you've heard some of the ones I'm going to mention before, but there's no harm in mentioning them again. There he is in great need. He's had a terrible night, hasn't he? hauled around the city, mistreated and mocked at, beaten, physical shape is terrible. I mean, if anyone had seen him, they would have thought, well, poor man. But we discover in all his need... He prays for others. Isn't that extraordinary? And the the ones he prays for are the ones who are actually doing it. The soldiers. I don't think we're meant to extend this to anybody else. The words are quite clear. There there they crucified him, that's the previous they, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them. All the rules of how to write a sentence indicate that he's praying for these soldiers. There isn't something about the heart of Jesus. That he offered this specific prayer. Very surprising prayer. But very specific. Father forgive them. He's not the only one that's speaking there. Of course at Calvary. And There's a contrast between the way he speaks. And how others are speaking there. In verse 35. Well, there's the rulers, the Sanhedrin, the ones who have wangled all this. And there they are, and we're told they are, and strangely, they tell the truth. They don't intend to tell the truth, but they do tell the truth when they say in verse 35, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. He did save others, didn't he? That's what he spent his whole life doing. He couldn't save himself. He's got a choice before him. Save himself and save no one else. And if he wants to save anyone else, he can't save himself. But that's the contrast. What a horrible thing to say, even though it was true. And then there's the soldiers. After he has prayed for them, they join in the mocking verse 36 the soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying if you are the king of the Jews save yourself because they are the ones that put up the notice board above his head aren't they and how else should you how else would you speak to a king for asking a king to show his power But there is a difference, I think, between the rulers and the soldiers. The rulers speak out of malice. The soldiers speak out of contempt. And there's a big difference between the two, isn't there? But what a contrast between both of them and the voice of Jesus. When Jesus made this petition, of course, it's an example of his own teaching. What to do for your enemies. Love your enemies. That's what he said in the sermon, on the mount wasn't it? Wonder if he had Calvary in mind when he said it. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He doesn't say pray for them after they've persecuted you. But pray for them as they persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So here he is. And of course that's what Luke kind of teaches, is not he? It stresses at the start of his gospel because he says, what he's, at the start of the book of Acts, he says when he's describing Luke, he says that he wrote what Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus practiced what he taught. And he did it on the cross as he prayed for his enemies. Now, of course, Jesus could have said lots of things to them that would have been true. He could have said to them, You shouldn't be doing this. Do you not know who I am? And all kinds of things like that. But even though Jesus was fully aware that these men were sinning, that was not the desire of his heart. And there in verse, if it says in verse 34, and Jesus said. I mean, the word said there is in the imperfect tense. So more literally it is, and Jesus was saying. It wasn't as if he just said it once, and, and as, um, as, he was, as if it was he was kind of ticking a box and getting each of the seven saints said but this first saint on the cross it was done with great intensity and with great eagerness for their salvation and also the tense of the the verbs or suggest to me was with great determination father forgive them Perhaps he prayed it with each blow of the mallet. Who knows? But there he prayed it. He wanted these five or six men to be delivered. And therefore he prayed for them. As I'm sure we noticed when we sang Psalm 22... These men are mentioned in Psalm 22. There's a fulfillment of prophecy that's happening here. As he says there in verse 16 of Psalm 22, A pack of dogs encloses me. The circle round me is complete. I am beset by evil men, and they have pierced my hands and feet. I count the number of my bones, with gloating eyes the people stare. They throw the dice to get my coat, among themselves my clothes they share. These soldiers, I wonder what they thought, because we do know they were converted later on. I wonder what they thought when they ever sang Psalm 22. But anyway, they fulfilled the prophecy. Literally extraordinary, isn't it? The Psalm tells us that Jesus would struggle for breath, and it tells us what the ones who crucified him would be doing. And the psalm also calls them dogs. And the reason, one reason why they were called dogs is because that's how Jews describe Gentiles. And these soldiers were Gentiles. So, as we listen into the prayer, it's just one side of a conversation, listen to it. What's going on on the other side? And I suppose... Normally when Jesus and the Father spoke to each other... They would speak through the Spirit. And this intensity that Jesus has... In his prayer to the Father where is the intensity coming from? Where is the eagerness coming from? Surely it's coming from the Holy Spirit, whom he had without measure. And the, the Holy Spirit who searches the deep things of God, who at that moment knew what was in the mind of the Father, And what would be pleasing to the Father to hear at that precise minute? Burdens the Saviour with this prayer Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Heaven approved, approved greatly of this petition. It was the right thing to say. Of course this petition also tells us, doesn't it, that all kinds of sin can be forgiven. I mean if you're, I mean I suppose this sin, even though it's slightly mitigated, is the worst sin that was ever committed. must not it? I mean, what kind of sin is this to kill the Son of God? These men, there are certain things they're not ignorant of. Though there are some things they are ignorant of. They're not ignorant of the fact that they should never be indifferent to the suffering of another human being. I mean, they know that. Nor are they ignorant of the fact that it's not enough just to obey orders. Merely obeying orders is never an excuse. So when Jesus says they don't know what they're doing, he's not talking about that. He's just saying they don't know him or what he's doing. And there is a kind of strange connection there, isn't there? If they hadn't done what they did, he couldn't do what he had come to do. But he prays for them, they don't know what they're doing. They're committing this terrible sin, crucifying the Son of God. And if that sin can be forgiven, what sin cannot be forgiven? And don't jump to the unforgivable sin either, because it's in a totally different category. And that's a kind of pointless link to make. So that's the prayer of Jesus. It's also important, I think it is important to note, that Jesus prays correctly. Jesus doesn't say to the soldiers, I forgive you. I mean, he could have done that, but he didn't. Why didn't he say, I forgive you? Because it's the Father's role to forgive. Jesus told us that in the Lord's Prayer, didn't he? One of the things we're to pray to the Father every day, our Father, and part of the petitions that's mentioned there is, forgive my debts as I forgive others. And here's Jesus. He's on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. The Father's role is to forgive sinners. And Jesus knows the heart of the Father. He's not praying to him something that the Father would say, well, that's unusual. This is the norm. Father, forgive them. And then there's the gambling of the soldiers. There, as Luke tells us, they cast lots to divide his garments. He couldn't get more indifferent, could we? You put the condemned person up in the cross and just forget about them. But there's something odd about his clothes, isn't there? Because there's no indication that they were interested in the clothes that the two condemned criminals were wearing. There's no hint that they sat under their crosses gambling for their clothes so there must have been something about Jesus' clothes that attracted them and was he still wearing the coat that Herod gave him because Herod gave him a coat when he left Herod's palace, after having been mocked there, part of the mocking was that Herod gave him a coat. And there's nowhere said, anywhere else, that, that that was taken from him. I mean, when he was went to the soldiers to get beaten, they would just have assumed that the coat was his coat. So maybe it was a very special coat. The coat of a king. A coat that would be worth keeping. And not, as it were, um, throwing away like the clothes of the other people that were crucified. And we're also told in one of the other Gospels that his inner tunic it was specially made. It was no use if it was divided into four or five, whatever it was. So they gambled for it. And of course that was predicted too, as we had mentioned a minute ago from Psalm 22. These soldiers are a real study, aren't they? How long does it take God to save a person? If they're down at the bottom, how long does it take for God to bring them up to the top? What degree of conviction of sin would be suitable for such cruel men? Well, nine o'clock. There they are, before six o'clock, they all stand at the cross and say, surely this is the Son of God. Grace can turn people very quickly. And the fact that they show no sign to us beforehand is completely irrelevant. Anyway, as we close, just some lessons. Surely, this example of Jesus tells us to pray for great sinners. Doesn't it? Who's the biggest sinner you know apart from yourself? Pray for them. Isn't it? that's very appropriate Play for big sinners your master did that second lesson we can learn from this is to say the right thing at the right time as I mentioned earlier Jesus could have rebuked these men but he didn't did he there's a time for rebuking. There's a time for not rebuking. And when somebody's near the cross, be careful what we say. I wonder what the soldier said later when they went home. Back to the barracks. Another set of soldiers were sent to arrest Jesus on one occasion by the Sanhedrin. And they came back saying, never man spake like this man. I wonder what these soldiers said when they went back to the barracks. Something similar. Their comrades may have even asked What did that victim say? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Another lesson is, of course, that even Jesus had to undergo the fact that no immediate indications were given that his prayer was answered. There was nothing in their behavior that followed his petition that indicated he had been heard. In fact, if we look at what they do after his petition, mocking him and offering him sour wine, we would almost say that's the exact opposite of an indication that he's been heard. You know, when we pray we're not to look for signs that we've been heard. the comfort from prayer is not seen what we can discern around us but from the fact that we have committed it to God Jesus you might say Didn't live to see his prayer answered, but it was answered. So, he understands, doesn't he, what it's like to pray for something earnestly and for it not to happen immediately. Another lesson, of course, is that every sinner is ignorant, aren't they? Their ignorance doesn't make these soldiers unique. What unconverted person understands who Jesus is? And which of them can explain what he's doing on the cross. None of them. All of them, whoever they are, they come under this category of being ignorant. And that's important for us to keep in mind. The last thing is, one of these soldiers went away wearing the tunic of Jesus at least within his pocket to put on another occasion and we can imagine somebody saying to him where did you get that from got it from Jesus and there's a certain sense isn't there the person that leave Calvary in the correct way. They leave it wearing the garments of Jesus. Because the garments of salvation are given. The garment of the robe of righteousness. Now one of these soldiers. Who gambled for the tunic. Well there he is wearing the garment of Jesus. I hope all of us are wearing it. Because in the end of the day, it's the only garment that will matter. Every other garment will be burnt up. But his garment will last forever. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks for what Jesus said when he went to the cross. We do thank you, Lord, for what he did. But we do thank you that you guided Luke to include in his account what Jesus said at the cross. And we thank you for that wonderful prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. These soldiers were blessed. Calvary to them, initially it was just a routine visit. But they discovered it was a visit that set them on the road to heaven. Lord, help us to follow their example. So bless us, we pray, for your own name's sake. Amen.